Hey, this is a 10. The tab's 13. You're two minutes late, dude. Ah, oh, come on. I couldn't find a place. Wise man say, forgiveness is divine, but never pay full price for late pizza. Hello and welcome to the Steal My Name podcast. I'm your host, Bob Barrow. I want to thank you guys for joining me for episode eight. So up to this point, I've done one movie. I've done two movies a couple times to get my feet wet. So I figured for, you know, a completely innocuous number like eight, you know, not a zero or a five anniversary episode or anything like that, just good old number eight. I thought I'd just kick the doors right in and say, fuck it, let's do four movies, because why the hell not? And I'll try and keep this under three hours, even though these are movies that I could really just rip apart and spend, well, I've spent a good portion of my entire life talking about these films. So let's get to work. So for this episode, uh, you know, actually, I think it kind of works out being eight, because what did an eight-year-old me love more than the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? So that's what I'm going to be talking about this episode. I'm going to be looking at the four original films. Yes, four. So Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, part two, Secret of the U's, part three, and the animated movie TMNT, which is a direct sequel to those three films. I'm not going to be talking about the the pissed-on dumpster fires that are the Michael Bay movies, those two, the new Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and then Out of the Shadows, because those films are just... Those are just their own can of worms, and talking about those films would really just divulge into kind of a bitch fest, and I don't, like, that's funny, but there's, I, I don't see the need in, in even touching on that. To really get into the head of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, because it's it's hard franchise to just show adults that maybe didn't watch the cartoon, maybe missed over the movies, and be like, hey, can you get into this? Because even just, I remember my parents as a kid adults mocked it. They made fun of it because it's silly. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is, was created in jest to begin with by the writers, uh, Kevin Eastman and Peter Laird. They, they created that as a joke. What's the, the funniest name we can come up with? It's a name we shouldn't take seriously, but it's something that we do. Now, in the 80s, they're really, I look at it as, you had kind of two blocks of kids. You had kids that kind of came of age into the Saturday morning in the early 80s. And for them, I think it's more like He-Man and Transformers and stuff like that. I kind of missed that boat. For me, I never, I didn't watch He-Man as a kid. We had some toys that we got secondhand. We got at a garage sale. So I played with some of them, but I, I have no emotional investment in that. The original Transformers, I have no investment in. I was too young when it was on TV. I got way more into Beast Wars later on, and I might actually do an episode on that because Beast Wars is fucking dope. But for kids that were kind of born in like 83, 84, as we're coming of age to, again, you know, into Saturday morning, because 80s and 90s, that's really, I think, the apex of the idea of getting up on Saturday morning to watch cartoons or watch your shows. There were two franchises that were just bigger than anything else. I guess three because we do kind of have to include G.I. Joe, but that wasn't my bag. So for me, the two, and for a lot of us, the two big franchises, it was Ghostbusters and the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And yes, obviously with Ghostbusters, for me, that's 
that's my first love. You don't, you can't touch it. I think the the real Ghostbusters cartoon, at least the first half of it, has still aged really well. It's something I can sit down and watch even now. And then there was the other half of my time and love and devotion was given to Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. I'm assuming most people know it did start out as a very gritty comic book series. I never read any of the comics. I wasn't a comic book kid. But it was quickly brought to the small screen in the form of the Ninja Turtles cartoon show. And that's what all the merchandise, the show itself, that that's what blew the property really wide open and led to the movie. Now, the first Ninja Turtles movie, it's not the cartoon. And that was one of the big caveats that the creative team, Laird Neesman, had when they made the movie is that... We don't want to just do the show. We want to go back to the comic books. We want to show people what the Ninja Turtles really is away from this kind of separate entity of this cartoon. And the first movie, this might be considered a bold statement, but I know a lot of people that share this. I still think it holds up as one of the best comic book adaptations ever made. Obviously, you have to leave kind of the Marvel stuff alone because that's its own perfect little animal. But before that, we lived in kind of a wasteland of comic book movies. We'd had, obviously, Superman in the 70s, and the first one was a big hit, and then it became kind of diminishing returns. And then every now and then, stuff would kind of pop up. By this point, I think it was 89, they'd had the first Batman, and that kind of kick-started a new take on comic book stuff. A little more gritty, a little more real, a little darker. You know, it wasn't camp and cartoon. And that's what this first Ninja Turtles is. Right off the hop, pun intended, You, we see that this couldn't be any farther from the cartoon show. It is grimy and grim from the opening frame of the film. We know exactly what we're getting into from the, the opening monologue that April's doing her her broadcast talking about the crime-ridden streets of New York City. We're seeing glimpses of the Foot Clan. We're seeing kind of this wonderful urban decay, kind of almost a film noir style New York where things are just being stolen left and right in ways we can't possibly imagine. The music is serious. There's no... Magoo moments that could kind of ruin it. They're really intent on setting up the tone of this film. But I guess before I go any further, we should probably do some kind of synopsis just to see what the hell the first movie is about. I will get better at remembering to do the synopsis before I start talking about the movie. But practice makes perfect, I guess. It is only episode number eight, so I'll get there eventually, maybe by episode 80. So, The Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles from 1990, directed by Steve Barron. According to IMDb, four Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles emerge from the shadows to protect New York City from a gang of criminal ninjas. Yeah, that's... That's on message. Uh, I like the idea that they have to say four. Is that implying that there's more down there? They just haven't introduced them yet, but whatever. Fuck it. It's IMDb. You get the point of this. As I said, right from minute one, we know the film that we're getting into. And the film from that moment continues to do so many things right in its introduction of its world and its introduction of the characters. 
the first character we're meeting from the show that we recognize is April. And I think it's a good starting point. So we don't rush right into the turtles. We get to know her first because as the human character, she's really kind of our gateway into the world. Now, in the cartoon, April is very much, she's the damsel in distress archetype. It's, I almost felt like the writers must have been banging their heads off the wall in that writer's room figuring out, well, how can the turtles save April this week? Because that's really all she is on the show. She gets into trouble, and the turtles always know where she is, or Shredder's fucking with her, or wants to steal her coat, or some nonsense. But here... April is presented as such a real strong character. And Judith Hogue's presentation of her in this movie, it's the best live action version. I think it's probably one of the best versions ever presented of the character. Yes, the turtles do have to intercede on her behalf a couple of times, but at no point is she a damsel. Is she weak or wayfish or whiny? She's strong. She's independent. She is out there fighting her battle. She's fighting the police. She's fighting City Hall. She's fighting to be have the truth that she knows taken seriously about the Foot Clan. And she's battling with the tools at her disposal. She doesn't need to get down there and start kung fu fighting or whatever. And yes, the animated version, when we get the TMNT, she's much more proactive in terms of a fighting sense. But I love the fact that she never has to resort to that here. She's already a warrior in her own right. And I have to say, as a kid, and it's still watching the movie now as an adult, I had such a crush on Judith Hogue as a kid, like 35, sitting watching the movie now, I'm just looking at her like, oh my God. Because she's not just like, yes, she's stunning, but she's so fierce and independent and strong. And she's just great. And they get a great little nod with the, the yellow raincoat. The only nod to that that they do in the whole movie. And you really don't need it. After that, because it it would have just been a thing, like the way they stuck Megan Fox in her yellow leather jacket in the other movies. Anyway, I'll I'll try not to keep drawing parallels to those two, because I said I wouldn't do it. I have to be strong. I have to be strong like April. I can do this. So her intro, she's saved by the turtles. A great fight that we don't even see. We just, we see Raph's side break the light out, and then we hear them kicking the foot's ass. And that's wonderful. We don't need to see it. Now, It's I know that having done some research into it, it was out of just necessity. They didn't have the time to choreograph another fight, so they just set it all in shadows, which is great because it's one of those, it's something you can't do with with CGI. When you're planning, when it's just, okay, let's shoot some plates, we'll do it all in CGI later. These happy accidents that you get when you're shooting things practically and on set, because you can react to things. A situation like this, there was intended to be a big fight. That This would have been our intro of the turtles. But because we're keeping them in shadow, we're waiting for them. You know, we see glimpses of Raph's mass sticking out of the manhole, and that perfect, you know, he's like, oh man, and then you hear him say, Damn. And the reckless use of the word damn in this movie as a kid was so wonderful to hear the turtles say that because it felt like, oh, I'm kind of watching 
something serious. I'm, I'm watching a big kids movie now because they're swearing. You know, you're at that age when damn is a swear word. Saying that could get you in shit. You know, as I say shit and fuck and all this stuff now, I can get away with. But there was a time, you know. I remember in third grade, this is a non sequitur, but it does apply to this language thing. In third grade, I won't say a name to protect the innocent, but there's a kid in our class who loved to say frig. It was his his go-to because when you're in the third grade, frig is that that's a big that's a big swear. You you've moved up from damn. Like to say frig, because you know you're not saying fuck, and everyone knows you're not saying fuck. And he was chirping at somebody in class, and teacher Miss Tatham said something to him, and he said frig to her. And I remember everyone just gasping, like, <gasps> and in my head, I'm like, I think back to that now. I'm like, man, he's saying it like the turtles. He was just such a rebel. But anyway. We're setting this tone perfectly and we're waiting for this version of the turtles to emerge because we don't see them right off off the bat. It's like, what kind of turtles are these? It's obviously isn't our cartoon. What version of these characters are we going to get? And, you know, we've we've had this fight in the shadows. Music's building. Now we're in the sewers. Oh, my God. And the characters literally jump out of their silhouettes, out of 2D into 3D as the title slams up on the screen and it's perfect. It's perfect. The I'll start with the suits because you can't talk about these first 3 movies, especially the first one without dealing with the suits. The animatronics that they use obviously you could say are are a little more archaic by today's standards, but at the time these were completely cutting edge and it's no surprise that they went to Jim Henson for this. It was the last film project that he was directly involved in before his, before his passing. And it was state of the art. It's work that he had been really pushing on his storytellers TV show. And it all kind of came to, to a head here. The, there's so much, depth and character that they get out of our out of what are really kind of basic you know simple primitive techniques that they're using you know it's just just wires and motors but the characters are so clearly drawn and this combination of the excellent puppeteer work that the act that the puppeteers and performers are doing to the work the guys in the suits are doing and then to the voice cast, what they're doing, you have these three separate groups of people bring it together that in that first scene, we know everything we need to know about the turtles. Now, obviously, we know them. We know the characters to a point coming in, whether you know them from the books or most of us having known them from the cartoon. And for the most part, they do st- Stay true to the cartoon roots that we know. They're obviously a little more serious, but you know, Mikey's funny. Raph is super pissed and serious. He's way more intense than he was on the show. Leo is, you know, more stoic, in charge, take charge kind of guy. I will say Donnie just kind of floats. He's a bit more of a mediator, peacekeeper, which I get that that does kind of fit with the show. I don't know how he plays in the comic books, but. Everything works so well, so quickly. And then we get to see the other, probably the biggest achievement in the movie in terms of special effects is the splinter puppet. 
incredible. And the fact that it's Elmo doing the voice, it's Kevin Clash. I, I'm sure I knew this. It's one of those facts that I, I read it now. It's like, I know I knew this. But when you have so much shit jostling around your brain, facts tend to kind of slip and fall by the wayside. But his the puppet for him is so wonderful. And it's Kevin Clash pup doing the main puppeteering. And then they had guys working his arms and hands, guys controlling the facial motors, and then Clash doing the voice as well. And Splinter is so strong and so stoic. He doesn't do much. He doesn't need to do much. He's presented as much more of a still sitting figure because he's such a very complex puppet. He can't be up running around or anything, but he just works so well. Now I'm, I'm always going to be biased on this film one, because I've been watching it since I was a kid, but two, I was lucky enough. I saw it recently on the big screen. I think it was January of uh, 2019 they were they showed it two nights in a row two sold out screenings at the review in Toronto and i i never got to see this on the big screen as a kid i was a little too young for this i saw the other ones and i'll talk more about that later but sitting now it's again biased you're you're sitting in a stacked room you know these are this is a room full of hardcore turtle fans in there but watching it on the big screen, and I think it's one of the things that influenced me to do this episode, to see just how well it still played, you know, almost 30 years later, was awe-inspiring. I know this sounds silly. It's, it's turtles. It shouldn't be awe-inspiring. But I, I was really bowled over by just how incredible the film still played and how well the characters interact with each other how well the suits still hold up. So, yeah. Anyway, well, let's move on. It's just going to kind of be like a bit of a walkthrough here of all the things that I absolutely love about this movie. So it it plays out just how you would, you would think a movie, this first film, their origin film, would play out. You know, they, they meet April. She meets them. Splinter gives them a little, her a little bit of background, which is adorable because we get to see the turtles as kids. Something I did not know honestly did not know until my research for this episode is that when they were shooting the flashbacks, the splinter getting the turtles, them kind of growing up is all those flashbacks to make them seem more gritty where he actually shot all that in eight millimeter to make it look like more of a a home movie approach. And it's just, it's one of the things that this movie has in spades that you, you would get diminishing returns on in the later films is there was such an, an emphasis on technique in this movie and trying to make a real film. It didn't matter that these were walking, talking turtles with multicolored headbands. They could have made this movie, this exact same movie about just four vigilantes living in the sewers, four people with some kind of deformity living in the sewers, anything. You could take the turtles out and it would still work because there's so much craft put into this film. It's a director that genuinely cared, not just about let's shoot it. Let's get the kids happy. Let's move on. No, you can tell, you can get that energy from films where you can feel the dedication and effort that everyone's putting in behind the scenes. And I think no matter the era 
or the genre that you're watching from you, those films, I think survive the best. They age the best because there was so much love put into it. And that really transcends time periods. You can go back to silent Hollywood to early films, seventies, eighties, nineties, doesn't matter. The films that have real love and technique and class and energy put into it. You're always going to feel that. And every scene rings true with it. One of the the great scenes in the movie of of the entire film is when Raph first meets Casey Jones, another major character from from the comic and the cartoon, played pitch perfect here by Elias Cotes, uh, and he's Canadian. Casey Jones is our boy, and that fight is it's funny, it's serious, it's intense, and it's a, that's a balance that the whole film manages to to strike. Because it could have been very easy because they're going for such a, a dark, gritty, realistic tone with this film to make it kind of a dour affair the whole way through. A very kind of grim, angry, you know, Batman v Superman kind of vibe to it. But even when things get really serious, they always still manage to keep a touch of levity that doesn't rob any of these scenes of their depth. It just reminds us that, oh, yes, there is comedy in here. There is some levity. There's some light at the end of the tunnel. And Raph fighting Casey Jones is fucking, it's hilarious. You know, they're they're bugging at each other. They're picking at each other. They're fighting, but they're, they're not really trying to hurt each other. And you can see this quick friendship form so quickly. Haha. How many times can you use the word quickly? Probably as many times as I'll say Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, because that's not going to get old at all. But that's that's a scene that my friend and I, Hayden, we quote to each other. I, I can't remember how many times. If somebody says crumpet or cricket, or we're talking about something that someone doesn't understand and we're trying to explain it to them, inevitably one of us will say cricket. You've got to know what a crumpet is to understand cricket. And it's just, it's wonderful. It is. I know I'm just gushing because it's it's really hard not to gush over a movie like this because we just really bounce from one great scene to the next. I'm not comparing them in terms of quality, but follow me on this. It's kind of like watching Terminator 2 where you're just moving between one fantastic set piece to the next. So we have Casey Jones, that introduction, then we have the fight in April's house on the rooftop with Raph getting his fucking ass beat down by the foot. And that it serves two great purposes because it knocks Raph out of the battle, but it also establishes the fact that the foot is a threat. You know, in obviously the turtles are very well trained and they can handle themselves, but we don't get into a situation with the Foot Clan here like you do in the show where they're just kind of disposable. Obviously, they're not robots like they are in the cartoon, but they're not just, you know, stormtroopers, red shirts that are just there to set up and get knocked down. Now, the turtles do kick the shit at an awful lot of them, but they're still a threat. And I think that was an excellent route to go. It's something that they lose in, in the next film, and the foot aren't even in the third one, where they're just there to be knocked around. They're kind of just faceless forces, you know, like you could say the Chitari and the Avengers, or <laughs> the 
Marvel movies do have a bit of a problem of of faceless armies, you know, like the Ultron robots, where they're just there for the good guys to to knock down en masse. It's something they can kill and destroy without feeling bad because they're not killing people. So, but here they handle it well, and it leads us to kind of our our lull here. Because at this point, it would it would seem logical. Let's just keep kicking the action up. We've had one great action scene after another, but again, this movie takes the alternate track. We get to April's farmhouse and it slows us down for almost 10 minutes. And that's a lot to expect a little kid sitting in a theater. But there used to be a time when movies made for young people didn't treat them like idiots. It took it seriously. And the filmmakers were like, no, kids can fucking sit still for this. They can deal with this because it's character building. We're getting more of the characters they love. It's always wonderful to see films like this to treat a young audience with a sense of respect that they'll come along with you on this journey and not just go well we got to shove another fucking bright light in their face so they don't you know dance around in the aisles and stuff more fucking popcorn in their eyes no they'll sit there and watch and all the stuff at the farmhouse is great yes we're, we get it's we're bouncing between dark moments and and lighter fun moments but as a kid the scenes of Raph laying in the bathtub after he's had his fucking shell beaten in and Leo Watt doing this vigil over him and April talking about it is as a kid, that was a heartbreaking moment for me. I remember viscerally reacting to that as, as a little boy from the obviously like Raph is a, he's a hero. He's his larger than life character that could be taken out like this, but also from a sibling angle. Cause I had an older sister and we we fought we fought and we squabbled and we we had our problems when we got a little older but even as, but as kids there was still you could only push it so far and no one else could mess with the other one so those scenes are so great and when Raph finally does wake up and you see just how overwhelmed Leo is this normally stoic character and this isn't shit that you're just bringing in. So, oh, I know from the cartoon or the comic that he's like this. No, the movie has given us this information. It's established that Leo is so in control and the guilt he feels for having not worked harder to keep Raph close to him. And then he feels so responsible for this beating that he took. And they share this wonderful moment and nothing magoos it. You know, the music is is soft and sweet and they have this wonderful embrace and now obviously Donnie comes in and you know it's a Kodak moment and diffuses it but it's a natural diffusion it's not a you know a goofy fart noise or a stupid joke it's it's a cute moment because Donnie would say something like that you know they would it's still brothers ripping on each other and that you know, we've had this chance to recover because movies used to do that where they would run like a bit of a roller coaster. Now, so much of this stuff, and I'd point to the new ones, which I said I wouldn't do. So it's not actually me pointing to the new ones. Someone else is doing that. It's my evil doppelganger who sometimes jumps on the mic and takes over the show where it's just straight ahead. Just hit that noise pedal. It's not even a gas pedal. It's just a fucking noise pedal, whether it's visual or auditory noise. And they just hammer on you for two hours and then it's done. This ebbs and flows. We're getting moments away with Splinter. We're getting moments away with this Danny kid, which we don't really need, but whatever, he's there. And quiet time with the turtles where they're alternately being funny and training and serious. 
before our final confrontation with the Shredder. Now, I feel like an idiot because I haven't talked about the Shredder yet. Like so many things in this movie, the presentation of the Shredder here never gets better. It's not better on the show. It's not better in the other movie that he's in. It's not better even in the later cartoons and the Millennium series when they did around the early 2000s is an awesome show. But Shredder here from his first moment that we get a glimpse of him is so menacing and such a genuine threat. When we first see him full body, there's the shot where he walks into the warehouse where all the foot is gathered. And I've talked to film friends about this. I've asked people, I've kind of theorized how they did this shot. And you could say it's it's an effort that the rest of the films don't put in, but it just shows how the real filmmaking that was involved in this movie. So I'm sure you guys have seen the movie. If not, go watch Shredder's first scene in The Ninja Turtles. He's walking in and there's just, he's in his cape, the full armor, and there's this massive shadow of him on the floor. And it's huge and it gets bigger and he's walking with this huge shadow. And then the shadow hits a perfect line, like a razor sharp line. And he walks across his shadow and then it completely disappears as he steps out into the light. People were cheering in the theater when I saw this uh, last year at that scene, because it's so incredible. It's just a great movie moment because that's, it's implicitly a film moment. It's not subtle. It's something that only film can do because it can have movement like this. It's a very arch kind of comic book moment where they're putting all the techniques on the table to give this character a large scale menace. His shadow is, 20 feet long. That's how big the Shredder is to these people. He's a literal giant to them. And the man himself destroys his own shadow as he's walking across it. He proves that he's bigger than anything. Their vision of him is so minuscule when he actually walks onto the scene. That's real depth. If you can look at a scene from a movie and pick it apart like that, that's the effort and ingenuity that goes into this stuff. You don't just do these things by accident. And the rest of the franchise, and so many franchises, don't take the time to do that. I've, I like watching movies with people that aren't film people because, well, one, it's always fun to show them that and start talking about it. Because they'll, they'll look at a scene and go, oh, that was neat and fun. And then you can look at it and go, oh, but this, this, and this. And that's why it all happened. And they kind of look at you and scratch their head and go, oh, yeah. That's why I think that's one of the benefits of really good cinematic critique. And I think it's something that's lost a lot nowadays because the film critic has kind of evolved, unfortunately, into more of a snark machine. Instead of writing a re- writing really good, interesting critique about a film. And that's just, it stands out as one of the most cinematic moments in the entire film. So by the time we get to this fight, because we're seeing the turtles kicking ass and they're whomping the, the foot. And Casey Jones being cool and fun. By the time the Shredder drops down on that rooftop, we haven't seen him a lot. And, but you see that moment, it's like, shit, like they're in actual trouble now because the Shredder on the show, he's funny. You know, it's Uncle Phil from Fresh Prince, James Avery. 
but it's very he's very much a goofball. He's a character of fun. Other than the kind of like the opening, I think it was like a little eight-part miniseries they did for the Turtles, which counts as their first season of the cartoon, where he's a little more menacing, but he's just constantly there mocking him, and he's whining and shit all the time in his gravelly voice. But here, Shredder doesn't fuck around. When he drops down onto that roof with his spear, he just starts kicking the shit out of them one by one. And it looks dangerous. We're worried about it. You know, Mike, one of his best lines, you know, at what point do we lose control here? And, you know, he's had, he's taken Splinter away from them. He's manipulated all these kids. And you're, we're worried when he gets that spear to Leo's throat, it's fuck, he's going to do it. But then of course, Splinter shows up and it's great because we think they're going to have this big choreographed fight because that's what you would do now. You know, in the new movies, Splinter's hopping around and kicking ass, but he doesn't need to. It's, I will point to, I will not spoil it, but Obi-Wan Kenobi and Darth Maul's duel in the Rebels cartoon show reminds me an awful lot of this battle. And if you haven't watched Rebels yet, what are you doing? Go watch it. But when you watch that scene, draw the parallels because they're definitely there. And I endlessly talked about his kid shredder falling off the roof. And you know, you, when you die, it will be without honor. Oh, and shredder does it to himself. You know, it's, it's his hubris that brings him down. You know, the turtles don't need to stab him and run him through. Splinter doesn't need to kick the shit out of him, which he could do. They could do that as, as a five. They could whomp and beat the shit out of him, but that doesn't need to happen because it's his own character that leads to his downfall. It's just perfect. It's There's some goofy moments. You know, Raph on the roof of the farmhouse screaming, Splinter is a little silly, but overall the film works so incredibly well because it never loses focus on the characters and its tone. It never jumps the shark. Any of the really big moments of levity are motivated because they don't hit you right off the top with this kind of childish goofiness that they could have gone for. They never lose that. Even the human stuff, when they go to the Foot Clan's warehouse and Sam Rockwell in an early role, which is delightful, you know, you you see these kids smoking cigarettes and drinking beer and gambling and skateboarding and playing video games. And that was such a wonderful melting pot of the 90s. Obviously not the smoking and the gambling and stuff, but the skateboard ramps and the punk kids and the arcade cabinets and like the Pepsi and Mountain Dew, it's... It's people chewing bubblegum in the clothes. It is such a great stew of the 90s. But at no point does those do those scenes feel like, look, it's the 90s. You know, kind of like those goofball scenes in the Double Dragon movie or so many other movies at this point where you can tell the filmmakers are just like, let's stick a bunch of shit in there that the kids look like and they know about. This is all motivated. And I think that's the big takeaway from this film is how motivated everything was, whether it was from the character study to the design, to the filmmaking, to the directing, the writing, the performances. It was all built and motivated around a singular idea of taking the original stories from the comic book and putting them on screen in the most truthful way that they could. 
it's why the best comic book movies work. It's why something like the original Batman resonated with people so much. It's why the first Iron Man was so successful. It's even something like the original X-Men or even something like Days of Future Past was so successful because they never lose sight of the tone and the utmost professionalism and technique is brought to bear on the character and in applying that tone to a character's story. And that's why the first Turtles movie still looks great. It's the movie you could put on now for someone that hasn't seen it in 25 years and go, dude, you remember the first Turtles movie? It's still fucking badass. Let's watch it. It's a movie I could watch once a week and not get tired of because there's so much to love in that movie. Oh, and something I noticed this time, I think it's because of the widescreen, is if I'm not mistaken, standing next to Sam Rockwell in a couple of those scenes is a very young Skeet Ulrich from uh, the Scream movies. So that's kind of fun and stupid. You know, the cute little things you see when you're watching a movie in widescreen, like Ron Jeremy in the first Ghostbusters. Yes, go back uh, and have a look for him in his uh, denim tuxedo right after the uh, containment unit blows and they run out and they're doing shots of people standing at the police barricades. I believe he's on the left of the screen. Uh, keep a lookout for the hedgehog. It's pretty fucking funny. Now on to part two. So I'll try and, I'll try and speed up this process or we're going to be here all night. So, Turtles 2, or Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 2, The Secret of the Ooze. Let's get the synopsis out of the way first, so I don't forget again. So, directed by Michael Pressman from 1991, the Turtles and Shredder battle once again, this time for the last canister of the ooze that created the Turtles, with which Shredder wants to unleash an army of new mutants. Yeah, that, that fits. Turtles 2 is tricky for me, because... I have a big attachment to this one specifically because it's the first one I saw in theaters. And when I was a kid, grade one and two, my dad worked in Kingston for over a year, if not more, year and a half, almost two years. He uh, managed a Manhattan Fries there. And so he would come home on the weekends or we would go and see him on the weekend. So I spent a shitload of time in Kingston. It's one of the reasons why uh, I love hotels. Uh, me and my sister were actually talking about this the other day, how we, we felt so fancy because we didn't have a lot of money as kids, but we spent a shitload of time in hotels and motels specifically. Uh, more specifically, the LaSalle in Kingston. That's uh, where I learned to dive, actually. So we would go and see my dad on weekends, and when he'd be at work, uh, me and mom and Jack, we would just kind of bomb around town. We'd go to Johnny McDonald's house or Old Fort Henry or hang out at the mall, and there was a theater in the parking lot of the mall, uh, I believe, if I'm getting my locations right. So one afternoon, mom's like, well, let's go to the movies. What do we want to see? And the only thing to see that year was Turtles 2. It's all I wanted to see. So we went, and as a little kid, you, you love it. You're not thinking about it. You're just absolutely loving this movie. And because of that experience and that love, I've always been very biased towards this film. I've always had a lot of time for it. And this was the hardest one of the four for me to talk about because you can... You can only leave your critical hat off for so long when you're going to talk about something. It's, it's easy to sit down, put on your rose-colored glasses, watch a movie, and just have an absolute ball about it. 
And there's a shitload of movies that I do that with, where those rose-colored glasses go on and you don't give a shit. They're on. They're proudly displayed. You have a Wiley Coyote sign that says, look, my glasses, motherfucker, say something. What? You know, Patty Patty Tanager, the caddy manager. Big, yeah, rhymes. Big whoop. Want to fight about it? But this time watching it, the whole time I'm doing my notes and doing my marathon, I'm kind of white-knuckling like, oh, shit. I still love this movie, but it's almost, it's a completely nostalgic love. And that was, that was a, that was a hard, it was a hard realization to come to on this one. Cause I talked to people and other film friends and they're like, yeah, the second one's cute, but it's, it's pretty bad in comparison. And it, I'm going to try and just stick to the some of the joy here, but watching it this time, I, I did kind of have to admit that, oh, shit, there, there's a pretty steep drop-off in terms of the quality. Now, I've always known that that first movie is so above and beyond anything else in the franchise that you, you, they'd have a hard time coming back and doing something that good. There's a lot of problems with this movie, and I think a lot of it stems from two primary factors. One, it was rushed to try and stay on the hype train that the franchise still had at this point, and it came out less than a year after the first one hit theaters. And almost any time that's happened in franchises, when you're you're barely waiting a year to get the movies out you start to see problems because scripts are rushed. You don't have the same time to work out your plots. And the other problem was the backlash that the first film faced in terms of its violence and its tone. Because a lot of parents took their kids to the first movie expecting the cartoon, they were pretty shocked when it was the comic book. It wasn't the cartoon. So the studio really caved under the pressure here and from you know right off the hop in the first movie it sets our tone and sticks with it right off the hop in this movie you know that there's an obvious tonal shift that's happened because of that backlash you know instead of this wonderful grim new york and the news report we get this kind of just looks more like a cheesy travel brochure for new york city everyone sure does love pizza Look at us all eating pizza because the turtles eat pizza. Get it? That's that opening moment. You, that's where you kind of have to make a promise to your audience. It's kind of like the prologue in a book. It doesn't have to feature your main characters, but you're making tonal and story promises to your audience about what they're going to get. The first movie makes a tonal promise to the audience of grim, gritty, serious, real. That's the promise. This promise they make to us is, look, pizza. The turtles eat pizza, so there's pizza. Uh, it's and then from there, it it just it really does continue. It keeps that tonal promise. I'll give it that. It it doesn't flag on it, but that's the movie that we're in now. You know, gone is the serious tone. In is pizza because the turtles eat pizza. The visual style is a lot cleaner. There's a lot less. There's no darkness, no deep shadows to to kind of hide some of the characters in. But that just gr- helped to create the world of the first movie. It's safe. 
Okay, I think that's the best word to describe this movie, is it's very safe. It's non-threatening. It's not as silly as the cartoon, but we're really looking, they're really looking to push it much more towards the cartoon. And that holds for everything. Shredder is back, unfortunately, in this one, but he's he's more buffoonish this time. He doesn't fight the turtles in any way. He's just kind of pissed and whining. Other than when he first shows up and makes his new helmet, which looks cool. Other than that, he's he's whining about Tokon Razar. He's, you know, even at the Vanilla Ice concert at the end, he just kind of stands on the stage and he's like, I'll get you, turtles. And they easily dispatch him. They don't even do it. It's it's Kino. It's the, Ernie Reese Jr. does it. Everything has just been moved three or four steps away from what made the first one great. There's been kind of a slight redesign on some of the turtles, Donatello especially. They've got a bit more of a beak this time, and Donnie's got a bad case of dead eye in a few shots. And his voice is different. Uh, Corey Feldman didn't come back this time because he'd been in rehab. Uh, Splinter looks a lot younger. He's kind of up and moving around this time a little more. I also think it's because we're changing the the visual style that the deep shadows, the noir look is gone. We're seeing them all a lot clearer. And it's not the suits. Everything still look great because it's still Henson Studios doing it, the Jim Henson Workshop. But because it's not there, the Turtles they just look a little more out of place. It just kind of looks like they're just walking around doing stuff. They're joking a lot more. The interpersonal dynamics of the team really has no play here. Raph is still a bit of a loner. You know, he goes off with our human counterpart because we can't have Casey Jones this time because Casey Jones is too too stressful for little kids, too stressful, too serious. Fuck that. He's kicking ass in track pants. Okay, that man is confident. He can do whatever he wants. He understands cricket. But everything just doesn't kind of work this time because of the goof. And it doesn't help that they recast April. Now, Paige Turco, she's doing her best. She's just, but she's just kind of there. She doesn't really have much to do. She's just going around reporting things much more in line with the cartoon. She's just a character in this movie. Ernie Reese Jr. is is Kino is he's a charming actor. He was Donatello's suit double in the first one, fight double. And he's fine. It's I don't need that character. I need the interpersonal dynamics of of the brothers. That's what you want from a good turtle story, is how are they working with each other? We get to see Donnie doing some more technical stuff. I felt like his character was really bumped forward in this one. He he doesn't have a ton to do in the first movie because the movie's really about Raphael. He's kind of the Wolverine of that story. But it worked. Donnie was just kind of this great anchoring force with the, with the four of them. Here, he's really involved. He's got a bulk of the dialogue. I think he has might have the most other than, than Raphael. And... But Raph and Leo aren't really squabbling as much. They're kind of griping. He doesn't help them build their house or find their new house, which I have to say, their their new layer does look pretty cool, the abandoned subway station. But 
everything was really moving more towards the cartoon and really softening. And it's like what happened with the real Ghostbusters when they halfway through decided to really brighten it up, lighten it up and dumb it down. And that's what happens here. You have the fights aren't serious. There's no threat. They don't really use their weapons that much. They're using props and gags. And they're just joking and riffing the entire time. It's it's a nonstop kind of litany of of riffs and jokes and one-liners. And they're that's funny. You know, uh, Robbie Risty is his name. The guy voicing Michelangelo is great. Everyone's doing a good job. It's just there's no there's no threat. There's no stakes anymore. The Shredder has lost all of his authority this time. He has no physical authority. He He's no visual authority. Nothing. He's much closer to his to the cartoon show. Um, this token Razar look cool. The suits are great. You know, they decided they didn't want to use Bebop and Rocksteady because they're too closely related to the show. So they just did. I, I knew friends that just called them Bebop and Rocksteady. Adult friends still do that. And it pisses me off for some reason because I'm an anal retentive nerd. But like the suits look great. Like that's that's good. I'm, I'm trying to find some good things to talk about here. You know, uh, David Warner's character, the professor, it's, a, it's a, obviously a really big nod to Baxter Stockman. I don't know why they didn't just call him Baxter Stockman. He behaves like him. He's dressed like him. The only thing is he doesn't turn evil or turn into a fly. It's still obviously supposed to be Baxter Stockman. It's fun when he has the Simpsons cup, you know, because Simpsons was huge at this point, too. So it's kind of a nice little back and forth nod to each other. I think the thing here that people remember the most about this movie is the ninja rap, which it fulfills the the promise that the opening credits made, but it's, it's awesome. You know, it's, it's a fun, it's a seriously funny, fun song to deal with, but they just know the choreography and vanilla ice just somehow manages to, to improv this song that everyone in his band knows and they all have these choreographed moves. Like it's it's so fucking silly. And that's the big problem here is that the integrity of the story was traded in to be a lot sillier and a lot safer for people. It this I don't know audience if you understand how much it hurts me to say these things. It's like I'm tearing out a piece of my soul to to come down on this movie. It's it might be one of the reasons why I've kind of avoided podcasting about turtles because I think a part of my brain knew that I was going to have to come to terms with with Secret of Views. It's oh fuck, it kind of sucked. Damn it, <laughs> it's so upsetting. It really is upsetting because it it's still again parts of my brain were having fun, but I noticed this time I wasn't really glued to the screen as much as I was watching the first movie, I was kind of looking around. There were parts that I was bored where you're not bored watching that first movie at all. It's super shredders. Cool. But when he got, when he drank the ooze, it mutated his costume too. Like it's shit like that, right? It's these laps in logic that I can't, it as a kid, 
you watch it and you don't think about that. You just go, oh my god, Super Shredder, he's, look how fucking sweet he is, dude. Like his armor looks all badass. But you try and put an any ounce of critical thinking on it, and it just it really falls apart. It's still fun. There's the the turtles are still fun. There's there's nothing to them this time, really. Not a lot, anyway. There's there's bits, you know. What they manage to sneak in is still there, but eh, there's no real threat. You know, you never feel like you never get a scene where Toka and Razar like violently beat down one of the turtles, like the foot did to Raph in the first one. You never get a scene showing April fighting her own side of the battle. You know. The the squabbling between Raph and Leo just kind of stops. You know, there's no there's no really climactic resolution to any of it. Nothing ever comes to a head. They trick the bad guys. The bad guys do a lot of standing around waiting for the turtles to enact their plan. You know, this whole time when they're you know this pre-fight donut. That's cute. But Shredder just stood there the whole time and watched this happen? Shredder in the first movie would have put a fucking spear through their dome. Like, it it wouldn't have done any of this. And it's... I think they they were always going to cave to the pressure. That would have happened, the public pressure. It's a shame because there's an alternate world where Turtles 2, they got to do kind of the Batman Returns of follow-ups where they stayed dark and gritty. They might have even gone farther, but still maintained kind of that fun tone because the audience was getting a little older. We were a little more sophisticated. You know, it's a year, it's a couple years later. We could have handled it. And it's always a shame, like I said before, when the filmmakers think that young people are stupid, that we're dense, that this same age, we're the same kids that are watching Willow and Legend and The NeverEnding Story and Return to Oz Weak and Labyrinth and Dark Crystal, we can handle this stuff. You know, none of those movies treated us like idiots. Never Ending Story 2 thought we were stupid. See where that went. But that's kind of what this amounts to, is there's a couple of mutants in it, Super Shredder and Vanilla Ice. Like if you ask most people about Secret of the Ooze, that's what they're going to remember. And that's unfortunate. I want to say more nice things and I'm desperately racking my brain before I move on to the, the piece of shit that is the third one. But oh my God, I can't, I can't, I can't. If you're going to watch this movie and enjoy it and you can have a few drinks, bolt those rose colored glasses to the side of your head, dig your turtle toys out and just hold them real close to your chest and do not bring your brain to the party because this isn't that movie. And this kind of represents the direction that the franchise was going to go, bringing us into Turtles 3. Now, like everyone else, I saw Turtles 3 in theaters because it was Turtles 3. That's what you did. You had to go and see the next Ninja Turtles. So let's see, as you can tell, do I sound excited? Because I don't feel excited. I actually feel like someone just sucked all of my energy right out of the right out of my butt. It's it's just depressing and upsetting. The synopsis of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles 3, directed by Stuart Gillard. 
from 1993 is as follows. The turtles find themselves transported back in time to ancient Japan. That's it. That's the plot of the third movie. I, I, don't, I don't know what else to say. I don't. This movie is... Try, Troy, try and gain some steam here. Get a little bit of oomph back in my stomp here. Otherwise, you can be like, Jesus Christ, if he's that sad, I'm going to go do something else. Like watch the first Ninja Turtles. Go watch the first Ninja Turtles, but wait for me to finish talking about Turtles first. This movie is, I would call, a perfect example of a franchise killer. Okay? Turtle Mania as a whole had... It, it peaked by this point. The cartoon had... The best time of the cartoon had... We'd come down a bit of a slope. Public pressure had softened the show, just like it had softened the movies. Power Rangers was, if not here already, was about to kind of ninja kick the damn rabbit and take over for a while. And this movie was really the final nail in its coffin. Because they, they had a choice. Keep going the way you're going or realize that, hey, we, we're going to lose the audience here if we don't take a step first movie was best reviewed let's go back to the roots let's go back to the comic book the early days and go back to what people loved about the franchise no instead of doing that they went off in this fucking insane dog shit cheap direction and this along with the next mutation tv series that came a couple years later that that it effectively killed the franchise for a while until the the millennium cartoons started up but it would never be as big as it was this was this murdered the franchise and rightly so this movie's fucking horrific this movie is is a a wooden spike in the head that's what it feels like it's an hour and a half where someone slowly takes a wooden spike and twists it in your ear and then you you'd hope man just hit it once real hard get it over with put my lights out nope they're just going to take another wooden spike and slowly put it in your ass and just twist that thing in there and it sucks the movie sucks there there's really no other way to put it it's just it's just a piece of shit jim henson they didn't do the suits this time and they look like shit there's no other way to describe the movie and the suit. The suits are the perfect analogy for the movie. The turtles look stupid. They look skinny and cheap. The animatronics have been reduced to a barely a mechanism that flaps it. Like you hear that hand? It feels like during the movie, you can hear that every time they talk. Splinter is horrific. Oh my God. Like the, the Kevin clash didn't come back to do the voice. Obviously it's not Henson. The, the new voice sounds like someone I'm doing an old guy that's vaguely Asian. It's so racist and off-putting. It's, it's dog shit. Um, only the original voices for Leo and Mike are still there. And that's really the only upbeat part of the whole film is the fact that their voices are the same. Corey Feldman's back is Donnie, but the writing is so bad and Feldman's not that great of an actor. So he has no ability to try and do any character work with it. So it just sounds like Corey Feldman this time in the first movie, Donnie has some depth and Feldman can act when he has a strong director and you believe him as Donatello in the first one here. It sounds like Corey Feldman spitting out one liners that are not funny. And this movie is just a nonstop stream of stupid one liners you get a little bit of hope with Casey Jones back, 
but he's just a glorified babysitter for the Japanese guys that are come forward in time while the other ones go back in time. And I think the most convoluted time travel machine ever it's, and he has a counterpart in ancient Japan. Apparently he had an ancestor. Then they think April's witch. Cause she goes back first and wanders around in a miniskirt the whole time. And somehow her walk, she loses her clothes in the time travel, but she keeps her Walkman and her Walkman plays music when her headphones aren't plugged in. Like I, I know all everything I'm saying sounds fucking insane. Like it sounds stupid. It sounds like things you. Why would you do those things? This is shit that happens in the movie. It's I. I'm gonna stop. I could go through the whole movie and rip it apart, part scene by scene, minute by minute, gag by gag, joke by joke. But why? That's that's gonna waste my time and it's gonna waste your time. It, there's no point for me to do this. If you would like to see that, someone who did it way better than me a long time ago, the in the early days of the Anger Video Game Nerd, he did a two-part review of Turtles 3, and it, it's funny. He picks apart the worst lines in the movie and does kind of a good roundup of the whole franchise and how it kind of you know took a turd dive, just swirled the bowl, and... Go check that out. I'll post the link for it below because otherwise it I'm just gonna go through and maybe if I, you know, had a beer and a couple of buddies here, we could we could rip it up, but I just I don't want to do that because it's just gonna be a shitty snark fest. Everyone that knows the Ninja Turtles knows that part three sucks. It just it just is. It makes the worst entries in any other franchise for the most part seem tolerable. I'd rather watch the prequels. Okay, I'd rather watch The Last Jedi again. I'm trying I'd rather watch one of the later Hellraiser sequels. You know, there's there's no I, Leprechaun in Space I'd rather watch than watch this. For the most part, even the worst sequels or the worst franchise movies, there's usually still a moment or two or a scene or two or a sequence where there's something to enjoy about the film where you're still a little, there's some excitement, there's some adventure, there's some pathos, there's some depth. Nothing. Okay? Nothing. Remember when we talked about opening credits making a promise to the audience? Okay? First one, brilliant promise followed through. Second one, pizza and silly, but it still followed through. You know, how do we meet the turtles this time? Do they leap out of the shadows and start acting cool? No. Do they do kind of an awesome trampoline leap into a fight scene? No. They walk out of their subway car doing a dance, a choreographed dance. That's it. They're buffoons. They're clowns. They're, they are noise, auditory and visual noise for dumb children to stare at. I don't know who this movie was made for. Maybe if you were five, you'd like it. Six, maybe a slow seven-year-old. But even as a kid watching this movie, I'm like, mm -mm, something ain't right. Something about your math done that up here. So, yeah, that, that's all we really need to say about Turtles 3. It killed the franchise. And it stayed buried on the big screen. In terms of big screen stuff, we had the 2000s cartoon, which was, was actually quite good. If you can get a hold of it, go check it out. Until 2007, when Kevin Monroe made TMNT. The first one not to be called Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. They just called it TMNT, which I thought was kind of cool. You know, it's kind of like how Batman went with The Dark Knight, you know, or Man of Steel. 
thought it was a neat touch. And it's also the first, uh, the first and only one up to this point that was com- straight animated. So it's computer animation. So 2007's TMNT. When the world is threatened by an ancient evil, the four adolescent turtles must reunite and overcome their faults in order to stand against it. You can see just from the synopsis there that there's actual character work at play this time. You know, that's an actual focus of the film this time. So live action franchise was done. The Millennium series had finished and we're back on the big screen trying to get kind of a a kickstart restart to the franchise. The the movie actually plays out uh, a lot like Ghostbusters 2, which doesn't bug me because I fucking love Ghostbusters 2. The team has fallen apart. Leo has left. Donnie's doing tech support. Mikey's doing children's parties, a la Ghostbusters 2. And Raph has gone off full vigilante. He's the only one out still fighting crime uh, as the Night Watcher. Wearing this awesome armor that has a serious Dark Knight Returns vibe to it, the Batman's armor, which is fitting because Frank Miller was a heavy inspiration in a mocking sort of sense to the original Turtles. So that's a nice touch. The film is strong. It's stronger than the than two and three. Unfortunately, it gets itself very convoluted, which I think. It was unnecessary for them to go this way. I, I'm not sure why they tried to pack in such a huge plot into a relatively short time period. This backstory of this 3,000-year-old immortal and these monsters that he had unleashed unwittingly and his buddies were all turned to stone in the process of turning him into an immortal. It's a, a great comic book plot. Or a great, you know, eight or nine episode arc for a cartoon show. But here it it all feels really rushed. And I don't I don't I find I found I didn't care. I wasn't invested in that part of the plot. Or this semi-confusing return of the foot clan. I don't know who the the woman is that's leading the foot. I think it's Shredder's daughter, but I'm never we're never told that. I'm sure it's in the comics. And I'm sure it's in one of the other shows, but I've always talked about this and me and my buddy Grinley bicker about this at work where it's, I, even if the movie is based on something that has a gigantic franchise, the IP is huge with comic books and shows and whatever. I need the movie to tell me what's going on because that's the movie's job. You can't rely on me to be bringing all this information to the table. I know who the turtles are. I know their dynamic. I'm familiar with the property. Otherwise, why would you really be going to see Ninja Turtles? But this kind of deep cut stuff that they're expecting me to know, I can push it aside and go, okay, she's from something else. The reason I can do this is because the Turtles are back to working as a family unit again. They're back to their core characters, which put them at odds with each other in terms of their interpersonal relationships. And that's great. We get to see Donnie is the tech guy. Raph's back to being a hard edged fucking badass. Mikey's funny yet. He can still kick ass and be serious. And Leo is struggling with what it means to be a leader and to lead his brothers and this incredible responsibility he feels and feels himself a failure. Um, 
Mako doing the voice of Splinter is great. He brings of alternating, alternatingly light, fun touch. The scene where he walks into the uh, to the kitchen and he's humming that lullaby, which I guess was an improv on his part in the studio, is so charming and refreshing. But then he can just snap into this heavy, serious mode. The Casey Jones is back, April's back, Sarah Michelle Geller is voicing April O'Neil, and she does great. She's no bullshit. She fights, but she's also out there investigating, doing all that. She's not really a reporter this time. She's doing other jobs. Kicking ass. Casey Jones is Chris Evans, Captain America. Yeah, voice of Casey Jones is great because also he's out fighting with Raph and doing stuff. But there's still interpersonal problems between him and April and the issues of their relationship. And how do you have a normal life when you live in a very abnormal situation? I mean, knowing the turtles and being a vigilante and all this stuff, the, the interpersonal stuff makes this movie work, despite all of the, the silliness. I think I always want to see them live action. I want to see suits. I want to see a tangible turtle. Love that alliteration. But the CG here was nice. The design is great. I love how the turtles looked. And because it's an animated film, we get to see them moving much more freely than we ever have before. They can really step into a physicality that they had in the comics and in the cartoon show in a way that at the time that the live action films were made would have been very difficult to do with suit performers. Now with the way CG and motion capture and all that stuff is now, it'd be very easy to have suit performers, your turtles, and then do CG work in doubles to kind of have them flipping around and kicking ass and stuff like they do in the Marvel movies. You know, we know Spider-Man and Captain America and stuff can't fling themselves around like that, but when they're not doing those things, they're guys in suits. So I think we could bring it back to that. But that's what makes this movie work again, is the character stuff. Leo and Raph are back to being at odds with each other, and their conflict actually comes to a much bigger head in this one than it ever has before. Their fight in the rain on the rooftop when it's Night Watcher versus Leo, it's equal parts beautiful to look at because it's very cinematic. It's equal parts exhilarating because it's a wonderfully choreographed fight, but at the same time, it's also, it's heartbreaking. And it's sad because Raph has so much rage and Leo is so not understanding where any of this comes from. It's that older brother syndrome where you just, you just can't get in your younger sibling's head that way. You just can't see it from their perspective because your worldview doesn't allow it. And that's what makes those two such great foils for each other because they have such dramatically different worldviews, but their core morals are the same. And that scene where Raph breaks Leo's katanas with his size and then stabs his side into the ground beside his head, they're CG characters. They're giant walking, talking turtles. But you feel this horrible pain that both of them are feeling in that moment. And it, it's one of the great character moments of the franchise, of the four films as a whole. And I didn't think you could get, like, obviously, like, my favorite moment is is the bathtub stuff, the farmhouse stuff in the first one. But this comes as close to approaching that, if not equaling it in some ways, in terms of character depth 
And that's the big thing. And I know I'm repeating myself ad nauseum here, but the reason these films work at their best is when the characters work. It's the reason the franchise works as a whole. It's why something as silly as the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles has survived. This franchise is still popular. It still has life and blood left in it. And it's the reason I'm I'm still talking about it, that any of us still care after all these years. Why the first movie can do two sold-out nights in movie theaters. Why you could put the first movie back into theaters nationwide right now and it would make money. Do you hear that? Whoever the hell owns this now, I don't know if it's New Line or who the fuck, it's probably Disney. Disney owns everything now. But, or just do another one of these. Do a sequel to the TMNT movie. It's it's a shame they didn't, I know they had plans to do a two and a three, to do a trilogy. It's a shame they didn't get to do those because they got off to a strong start here. But I think if this movie has a failing is that it didn't make much of an effort to bring in a new audience it went out and courted the Turtles audience as it existed. And because it got so niche and doing deep cuts on stuff, it's not a movie that I would really suggest to someone that's not familiar with Ninja Turtles or someone that's only familiar in passing. Because it is, it is much more of, I, want to, I hate to say it, it's more of a fan movie. It's a movie made for the core audience of the Ninja Turtles, which that's fine in, in a sense. I'm that core audience, so I'm fine with it. But I think if they had have broadened the approach, I think that would have holistically changed the film all across the board. I think it would have streamlined the plot. It would have forced a change in the writing to make it more open where we're learning stuff about the world like learning about the Foot Clan's involvement here instead of just presenting it. And it's one of the positives of fish out of water characters is they have to explain stuff to people. You know, it's why having April and Casey Jones in the first movie works because Splinter and the Turtles have to explain stuff to them. So we, as the audience, are having stuff explained to us. It's, it's the Foot Clan stuff here that I, I'm referencing the most in this sense. Because there's no one for them to explain it to, they just accept. It's kind of, it's the Star Wars prequel syndrome where they're just accepting that, oh, this character's here now. We know you. Well, we don't. The audience, guys, the other ones on the, the, the other side of the screen, we need some help. Help us. But it's still, it's obviously the first one's the best. Then I would say this one is is a good second, then Secret of the Ooze, and then in a distant fourth. You know what? I'm not even going to rate it. Three films. I know there's four, but part three is so stupid, it doesn't even warrant a rating. I guess it's fourth by proxy, but that is a pity vote. That's like the honorable mention, okay? You're there because you happen to be a Turtles movie. You didn't actually get that rank. Any other movie. The Super Mario Brothers movie is the fourth best Ninja Turtles movie, okay? That's that's my official vote. It was it was fun to go through all these movies. It was uh, Kevin Smith's cameo in TMNT. Can't forget to point that out because it's cute. It's quite fun to see him in the universe. It's it's fun to go back and revisit this stuff to to bring a fresh set of eyes, a more you know critical sense. We'll still main 
understanding and accepting the playfulness and the inherent kind of joy that you get, that we get from something like the Ninja Turtles that's at its core. The first movie I watched on a semi-regular basis. So it, it had been a while, though, since I'd watched the others. I hadn't watched part two in oh, probably four or five years. I haven't watched the third one in longer. And if I never have to see that one again, it will be too soon. Same with TMNT. Haven't watched that one in a few years. It's it's fun. It's it's fun and it hurts at both at the same time, right? Because this is a franchise that took such a dramatic swan dive and it went from the gold medal podium and then it fell to bronze and then it didn't even place. It OD'd in its hotel room before it even got out to the trials. And then kind of came back a little strong, you know? It kind of came back and it it made it to the trials. It didn't place on the team this year, but man, it had a good, strong showing. You know, one more year of training and it could have got there. But no, I, I recommend, obviously, the first one. You, if you're feeling really rosy about it, watch the second one. And then TMNT. So just don't, whatever you do, just don't watch the third one. Unless you're feeling really masochistic and you got a big bottle of Jim Bean and a lot of patience. But... I, I wouldn't even recommend it for that. There's a shitload of other movies that you'd be so much better off getting liquored up. Anytime, okay, here, here's my mandate. Anytime you feel that you need to watch TMNT with a big three, with a big bottle of liquor, watch any other movie. Anyone. It doesn't matter. Watch the new Turtles movies instead. Okay? That's how bad part three is. It's just, yeah, watch any other movie that you can see. Look around your house, and if you don't see a movie, one, you're weird, but then go and read the shampoo bottles. Go and read the back of a Cheerio box. That's a better thing to do with your time. But enough with Turtles. Let's get on to Star Trek and try and wrap this up in a bit of an orderly manner here because I'm going long, going big. So Deep Space Nine, Episode 8. Aired February 22nd, 1993, called The Passenger. Rayo Vontica, a captured criminal, is badly burned and dies in Bashir's arms, but the criminal's captor believes he is still alive. This is this is a cute episode. It definitely is. It's it's a Bashir-focused episode. Um, he, you know, we start off getting to see him rubbing another character the wrong way. This time it's Major Kira, which is funny because they would actually end up getting married and they have a child together. They're, they're since not together, but that's a, that's a fun little thing here. It's alternately a good, fun, meat and potatoes Star Trek with, which some, with some really seriously silly moments. The, the, good stuff that it does here is twofold. One, it establishes Odo's first brush with Starfleet security. And that's going to be another ongoing thing with Odo. Because Deep Space Nine is a Bajoran space station and they have invited Starfleet in, Cisco always, in terms of security stuff and like that, he always gives control over to, to Odo as he is head of security of the station. But 
as they say in this episode, Starfleet isn't going to take control of an isolated outpost in deep space without bringing in some kind of security presence that is Starfleet. Because Odo doesn't operate under their rules. He's much more cavalier, much more free-flowing, does things way off book, where Starfleet does not operate that like that. Their internal structure doesn't allow for them to operate so freewheeling. So this, he kind of has his first brush with a Starfleet security officer here. And man, does he bristle. And he's like, fuck it, I quit, I'm out. And Cisco's like, no, everything's cool, it's cool, you're in charge. This guy does a good job of bringing him around on it because he ends up helping him out. But he only helps him out because he takes a cue from Odo because Odo's fucking badass. The major focus here is on Bashir and a classic sci-fi trope of the body swap. Okay, whether it's mind control or possession or aliens taking over a body or robot something, it's it's classic sci-fi. Trek has done it a bunch. It's just a good, solid trope. Doing it to Bashir here is it's nice because it helps in a small way, adds to his character because he gets into trouble because of his hubris. Bashir, especially in the early seasons, is a very arrogant character. He's very overconfident. He's young, he's brilliant, and he knows these things. He chose this this position because, or he chose his posting on Deep Space Nine because he wanted to be out in the frontier doing brand new things and applying, giving his genius, his gift to the world. And it's that hubris. He thinks he can save anybody. He doesn't need to listen to anybody that gets him in trouble. We even start the episode with him talking talking about how brilliant he is, that he'd saved somebody that they thought was dead, and he's not even listening to Major Kira's responses to him, and that gets him in trouble. He comes into contact with this Rayovantica character who shoots a little microchip under Bashir's skin that has Buddy Bad Guy's consciousness downloaded in it, and he takes over Bashir's body. Fine. I'm, I'm there. I can handle that. I will say Bashir's bad guy stuff is the way they decided to play it was silly because all he really did was kind of squint and talk a little slower and archly bad guy. But, you know, it's it's one of those race to solve the problem episodes. You know, as I said, it's, it's meat and potatoes Star Trek where problem established threat of a timeline, you know, we have three hours until something goes something, whether it's breaks down, kabooms, people die, drowned, explode, whatever. This is a, a fuel shipment that their buddy bad guy wants to hijack and he gets put into a corner and he's going to blow everybody up unless they let him go. Plain and simple. Like, it's, it's not a complicated plot line in any way, shape or form. And of course, they they save the day. They do Trekno Babel stuff. They uh, to to get specific, they send an electromagnetic signal up signal up the tractor beam that refracts on the same frequency as the ship's shields that overrides the chip that Vantic has put into Bashir's brain, letting Bashir reassume control of his own body for a few moments. God, I love Trekno Babel. I love that shit. And they're like, if we can set this field to the exact same harmonization or frequency or modulation of this or that. I fucking love Treknobabble. It never gets boring for me. I love the sound of them tapping the keys and just the, the background hum of the ship. I love it. I love when they solve this stuff with a bunch of hardcore tech jargon. Doesn't bother me at all. It's, again, mean potatoes Trek. 
it is unfortunately, it's one of those episodes that despite some character stuff happening in the background, this plot line can and has happened on other Star Treks. So it's nothing unique to Deep Space Nine. Uh, it ends grimmer. There's moments that only DS9 can do, like when she they get him out of Bashir's head and put him in a little flashing box, and the security guard that was tracking him the whole time just fucking shoots it, just vaporizes him, which is, you know, good DS9, no bullshit. It's like, I'm tired of arresting this guy. Boom. Just shoot him. Like, Batman, you please just shoot the Joker. Like, let's get this over with. So it's good. A good little episode. So I recommend The Passenger. Nothing fancy, but still very much enjoyable. So for books, uh, to semi-wrap us out, one more thing after this, because I'll remember to do my recommendations properly this week, because I don't know if you noticed the drop in audio quality last week. It's because I fucked up. So for book, I read A Complicated Kindness by Canadian author Miriam Toes from 2004. Now, I actually read this book back in January, but it fits pretty well. I'm reading too much. I'm way ahead of my schedule. I was banking on reading one book a week, and that would be my book that I talk about. Yeah, I'm now like four, almost four books ahead of my schedule, so which is great. Because I love reading a lot, and Tuesday I'm coming for your number. I'm gonna be, I'm gonna lap you. But this is, I thought, fit into this this plot here really well. I read this book specifically because um, I realized I don't read enough Canadian fiction, and I also realized I don't read enough female authors. Now, this isn't like some kind of faux woke moment where it's, I'm only going to read female authors because I'm woke and I'm the ally and all that shit. No, it was through no intention that I wasn't reading female authors or that I was intentionally seeking them out in any way. I never made an effort either way. I'm, I tend to find authors that I like and I read all their stuff. I tend to stick with certain genres that I like and I'm a bit of a cover shopper. Or I'll hear about a book that another author's recommended or talked about. But I kind of got to a point where I was, fuck, I, I just really haven't read much. And that's, you can only go so far as a writer when you realize that you're missing out on a huge amount of work out there. And also a completely different perspective. And I also, on top of that, having not read a lot of female authors, not a lot of Canadian stuff, I also read predom- predominantly genre stuff, whether it's horror or sci-fi or fantasy, or I read a lot of nonfiction, but it's a lot of heavy political stuff or Bukowski poetry things. I don't read just a lot of, I guess, fiction books, books that you would go into, like, you know, you go into chapters, I go to horror, sci-fi, fantasy in the movie section. I don't go generally into the fiction, in quotes, section books that are just about people where there's no wings or explosions or spaceships or anything it those books are all still riddled with character work more than most people expect but i don't generally just read fiction so i thought i would take a big leap here on this one and take this recommendation and go for it so this book revolves around a teenage girl named naomi nickel in a small archly mennonite community in saskatchewan and it's it reminded me a lot of SLC Punk because that's how it kind of plays out is just this series of moments 
and her observations on situations. Almost diary in a way, kind of a journaled sense, but it's not, you know, like Bridget Jones's diary or anything, which I have read. I have, I'm not all terrible. Uh, Good book, by the way. I recommend the first one. And that's how we're kind of playing out as she's taking us through her typical day in her life. And it's horrible. The, everyone is so orthodox in this community that you can't drink or dance or swear, but the entire population of young people is drinking and drugging and sexing themselves to death in of this vain attempt to feel anything because they feel so isolated and so hopeless locked in this community that she knows that her, her fate, she's going to graduate high school, get married and have to go work at the chicken processing plant and you feel hopeless. And I know that sense of being a teenager and you feel like you can't do anything that nothing that you feel matters to anybody that the whole world is telling you how to behave all the time. Now it's obviously a much more extreme situation here with this religious orthodoxy, but she's also grappling with the fact that her sister is left because she doesn't want to live this lifestyle. Her mother has left because she doesn't want to live this lifestyle anymore. And everyone just erases them. They, it's this concept of excommunication and, that's horrific that you have to pretend that these people don't exist. How crippling emotionally that would be. So it's just her and her father and this kind of jerk off boyfriend that she has. And she's just out trying to drink and do drugs and just to forget about her life. It's a grim yet funny read because the character of Naomi Nichol, she's funny. She approaches her situation with a lot of good humor. It reminds me a lot of uh, some of Chuck Klosterman's style, uh, specifically in books like uh, Killing Yourself to Live, where you can kind of turn on a dime from these serious observations and be funny about it. But it's this idea of being trapped in this hopeless vacuum where you feel like a freak because people come and look at you like a tourist attraction and you can't talk about your mother anymore, your sister anymore, and you can't have any kind of personal identity. And it, it really captures that sense of being a teenager anywhere. It's just so amplified because of, of the religious situation here. A great book. I heartily recommend it. Uh, a Complicated Kindness by Miriam Toes. She's written a few other books. I have not read them, but they're on my, my to track down list. I know several of them revolve around this kind of Mennonite community because I guess she grew up as a Mennonite in a community like this. It's, it's so strange in modern time, even though the book was written in 2004, in modern times to think that in Canada, we have places like this where people still live like this willingly, which is funny because in Peterborough, we we have a a Mennonite compound, I guess, where people still live. I think, I don't know if it's Mennonite or if it's Mormons or something, but I see them at work. The the women you would notice at work is they're wearing like the old timey dresses and the bonnets and stuff. The men come in and they're dressed all normally and ordering people around. And I don't 
I'm, I'm sure there's usually when anything gets orthodox, as I've talked about before, it's usually just a way to control somebody, uh, probably the women in your family, and it's probably unhealthy, but I don't know. Whatever. They shop and they seem happy when they're shopping. But yeah, check it out. A Complicated Kindness. Recommendations, the actual end of the episode. So to stay on theme of, uh, of kids' TV shows from the 90s, I'm going to give some uh, kind of strange recommendations. I'm going to recommend for movies, Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, the movie from 1995, and Power Rangers, the reboot from 2017. Yes, Mighty Morphin Power Rangers sucks. It's a show that is aged like milk under the radiator. It's, it's not good just it's not you it's it's nostalgic and lovely for nostalgic reasons but in terms of quality and stuff it's quite terrible but the movie is still such a rip i watched probably three or four months ago again it's get some drinks and watch and have a laugh because it's great fun to do it that way because it's so cheesy the power rangers reboot in 2017 was actually good in, in in an actual sense using the word good good it's, it's, the kids are good and interesting. I like the redesign on the suits. Uh, Rita's fun. She's just chewing up the scenes the whole time. It's good. I wish they had gotten to their suits a little faster, get more Power Ranger time with them, but it was kind of low budget, so whatever. It's a shame they didn't get to do a second round with that because the kids are interesting. It's uh, Billy, who uh, would play Billy on uh, Stranger Things, the dick. He's the Red Ranger here, and he's great. the The kid dynamic is fun. They've got they hit all the beats, you know, with the the slightly autistic kid and the disenfranchised people, and it's good. It, it's a genuinely good little Power Rangers movie. It would have been nice to see them move it in that direction, a little more grounded, but still not afraid to dial up the fun. Check it out. In terms of books, uh, graphic novel graphic novel recommendation this week. I recommend IDW's Ghostbusters Ninja Turtle crossover. The Ghostbusters comic that IDW has been doing for the last several years is one of the only comics that I follow to any degree, and I really like their books. I like their art style, I like what they've done with the characters, and they've done two Ninja Turtle crossovers up to this point. And the first one is good fun. It, it's not big or bombastic or anything, but the characters fit together really well. You know, the first thing Mikey wants to do is put on a jumpsuit and a proton pack. He loves it. It's it's good. It's great. They've collected it into a graphic novel, um, so that's what I have. So check it out. IDW's Ghostbusters Turtles crossover. Good fun. That brings us to the actual close of Episode 8 and all this turtle mania. Uh, I hope you guys had uh, had some fun with me. I had some fun doing it, so always good to talk about Turtles. Coming next week for Episode 9, uh, back to one movie. I thought I'd tone it down a little bit, because Episode 10 is, is actually going to be more. So it's going to get really crazy for 10. So I'm going to calm everything down a bit for Episode 9. So this is actually one of the movies that got away from me on A Frame of Heart. We are going to be talking about John Ford's The Searchers next week. I barely got into Westerns before A Frame Apart uh, ended its time, and I've only recently got into Westerns as an adult and talked about, uh, I love Sergio Leone Westerns, I love Lee Van Cleef Spaghetti Westerns, I love that stuff, 
But the John Ford Westerns, that's its own other animal. He's really one of the godfathers of American cinema and especially of the Western. And The Searchers is kind of his big, like the final apex statement on the traditional Western. The, you know, the John Wayne character completely morphed from this idealistic hero into this almost ambivalent villain. So John Ford's The Searchers. That's what's coming for episode nine. Until then, you can find me on Facebook at Steal My Name Cast. You can find me on SoundCloud at the Steal My Name Podcast. Uh, be sure to like, follow, engage with me. Let me know what you like about the show, what you don't like about the show. Suggestions, comments, criticisms, polite criticisms. Just don't be a dick. What's the point? Like, get a life. Go watch Turtles 3 if you just want to be a dick. So thank you once again. And until next time, remember to steal someone else's name because this one is already taken.